Good morning. How many of you are enjoying the heat? Or I should say, how many of you are enjoying your air conditioner? <laughs> yeah, I must say I'm thankful that this uh, heat wave has passed, right? All right, well, turning your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7. And we're going to be reading verses 1 through 6. And I'm just going to get into the talk for this morning because we have a lot to cover um, about the topic of judging. And this morning, what I hope to do is open up righteous judging. How to judge righteously. Let's read Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. And of course, this is the word of the Lord. Judge not that you be not judged. For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye, and look, a plank is in your own eye. Hypocrite, first remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Do not give what is holy to the dogs, nor cast your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn and tear you into pieces. So last week I began uh, the topic of judging, and what I opened the series with is dealing with a misconception about this passage and about judging that people have and Christians have, and that is they misinterpret this passage to mean that Christians shouldn't judge at all. And I just want to kind of briefly review, especially for those of, you, those of you who are joining us for the first time, because it's important that I establish this misconception before we get into what Jesus actually means by this text. So, um, we saw that Christians should not judge as all, at all as a fallacy. Jesus is not saying here that Christians shouldn't judge at all. In fact, when Christians do not speak out against immoral, de deviant behavior, i.e. what we call sin in our culture, right? Or Christian culture, the church. Society tends to become more and more corrupt and unrighteous. This is because society is very good at justifying and excusing immoral behavior, right? Okay. Christians must continue to speak out against sin. We must uphold righteous values as defined by God's law and be willing to suffer ridicule, hatred, and persecution for the sake of righteousness. And that's what I believe Jesus meant when he says, blessed are you when you are persecuted for righteousness specifically said for righteousness. If we do not uphold God's moral law, okay, we won't understand what that means, all right? So we, we, we move from the misconception that, um, that Christians shouldn't judge at all to talk about what Jesus actually means when he says, judge not that you be not judged. Um, and what Jesus is actually identifying here is what we term judgmentalism judgmentalism. So let me read the text again, and then I kind of briefly want to describe this judgmentalism that I think Jesus is going after here, and then I'll kind of bring it all together as we discuss the right way to judge. Judge not that you be not judged, for with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with what measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Judgmentalism is an attitude of superiority sinners tend to have against other sinners that is based in their own criteria or standard, okay? And we all do it. Those out there do it, and we in here do it, okay? What Jesus is doing is Jesus is warning his disciples to be careful of it, all right? Let me repeat it. Judgmentalism is an attitude of superiority sinners tend to have against other sinners based upon their own standard or criteria. It is the tendency to make up your own rules and determine right or wrong for ourselves and others around us, as if we are, guess who? 
God, right? This happens naturally when there are no, no moral absolute in a society, okay? So this is where we go when we say no to God's law. When we say as a society there is no moral absolute, by default, you know what we all start doing? Judging, making up our own standards and criteria, and then we start sizing people up according to it, and then we set our own cliques and worlds based upon our, what? False standards and false criteria, get it? You guys see how it works? Okay, this is what Jesus is condemning in the text, and I wanna make this perfectly clear as we work through the, the, the message this morning. All right, um, Satan promised Adam and Eve in their temptation, or I should say this is what Satan promised Adam and Eve in their temptation when he said, listen carefully, you shall not surely die, for God knows that in the day that you eat thereof, your eyes will be open. That means you're gonna learn something you didn't know before, okay? Meaning God's hiding something from you. Your eyes will be opened and you will be like him, knowing good and evil. What Satan's saying is God knows when you partake of this fruit, he's saying what's really gonna happen is your eyes are gonna be open and you're gonna see you can be just like who? God. You don't have to follow his what? Ways, his law, his standards. You can be a law unto yourself, right? You can be free. And thus we have America <laughs> currently, right? Not old school America. The current rendition. I say that tongue in cheek. Um, I'm, I'm not anti-American here, all right? I love my country. I love my people. I mean that. So um, let me give you some examples of these false standards and criteria that are all around us that tend to promote judgmentalism in a society or culture. One, situation ethics replacing God's law. Situation ethics replacing God's law. Two, ends justifying the means replacing God's law. When the ends justify the means and you live by that as a philosophy and you replace God's law with that, you're gonna create a judgmental critical society, okay? Three, my good will weigh out, outweigh my bads replaces God's standard for acceptance and rejection, right? And let me just pause here. Who gives us the right to do that? We are not God, right? We didn't make ourselves. God is the only one that has the absolute right to set the law and standards. He is the lawgiver, okay? And it's not just for the children of Israel. He is God. It's a creator-creature distinction that all humans need to recognize, okay? And then lastly, and this is just another example, when we take matters into our own hands, you know, the vigilante spirit, I think there was a congressman that was shot at a softball game uh, last week because somebody decided to take matters into their own hands, right? And said, I'm gonna be the law here and I think these people should what? Die. Who gives him that right? Do you understand? And then it just triggers this, right? Somebody hits somebody and they gotta hit them back, you know? Sort of like the Hatfields and the McCoys, right? The whole, you know, you start it and I'm gonna finish it, right? It's the typical idea or the mentality that runs the gangs in our areas, for, for in my neck of the woods, okay? But can you guys see how prevalent this stuff is in our society, in our culture? This is what happens when a society aborts God's law but still must govern itself, right? See, we say no to God's law, but then we have to govern ourselves still, right? It's like us, and, 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 you know, because we see an injustice maybe with cops and we say, no more cops. And then all of a sudden we're left with, Who, who's gonna keep order around here? And we, we're like, oh, big mistake, right? So wrong judging is when we determine right or wrong for ourselves and we become a law to ourselves. That's where it all begins, okay? We'll talk about the critical judgmental spirit that some tend to have. I'm not going, I'm laying a foundation here for why people get this way, okay? 
Um, I gave you the example, scripturally speaking, we don't have to turn there with Mark chapter seven and how the Pharisees were going around imposing their laws and their traditions on people. Why don't your hand, why, why do your disciples, Jesus, not wash their hands before they eat like our disciples do, right? This is how we roll around here, in other words. And Jesus is saying, not me. I don't follow men and their traditions first, God and his law. See it there? Okay, so having established that to be wrong judging, that's what Jesus is talking about in the text. I wanna move on to talk about righteous judging and how we judge according to the gospel of God's grace. All right, and that's the bulk of the sermon this morning. I don't know how far we're gonna get, but here's the outline. First, we're gonna define righteous judging from the text. Two, I'm gonna apply it. And then three, if we have time, I wanna illustrate it through the life of the Lord Jesus because he's our, remember, our hermeneutic. He's who we worship. He's who we look to to determine the law and the prophets and what they meant. He's who we look to to determine what God the Father means. He is the one that we worship and adore, right? Not our commentaries, not our brothers and sisters as much as we love them. We start with Jesus, how he did it, okay? So righteous judging, what is it? Well, first look at verse three of our text. Um, It reads, and why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your own eye and look a plank is in your own eye. Now I want you to notice something here. It seems to me like Jesus And what he's saying seems to imply that the person doing the wrong judging is well-intended. Follow me? You guys get what I'm saying? There's something they're trying to achieve here in the text. There's a reason why Jesus is saying what he's saying, right? And that's where we have to look at things in their historical context if we're really gonna understand what Jesus is meaning here. So I wanna take you guys back to where? The Old Testament, because that's where all this, that's where the foundation for all this is laid, okay? Now, let me assert something here. Historically, in Jewish culture, you were your brother's keeper, okay? And it's no different for the church of God in our culture. We are our brother's keeper. Remember, Cain was the one saying, what, am I my brother's keeper? And we all know who Cain was, right? So we do not wanna follow his example. Okay, we are our brother's keeper. What Jesus is doing here is he's highlighting the reality that in Jewish culture, we were, or they were their brother's keeper. Now I wanna turn you to three passages to establish this. Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse one. And you you did not have to turn there. You can just cite the verse because I'm just gonna move on for the sake of time. Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse one reads this way. Uh, You shall not see your brother's ox or a sheep going astray and hide yourself from them. You shall certainly bring him back to your brother. And if your brother is not near you, or if you do not know him, then you shall bring it to your own house and it shall remain with you until your brother seeks it. Then you shall restore it to him. That's the culture in in, Israel. Moses' day, this is the law. You you don't have an option. You understand that? See, I have an option when I'm on the freeway and I see someone, you know, broken down and they need their tire to be fixed and I'm looking at my watch and I'm like, ah, somebody else will do it. In Jewish culture, everybody who saw it needed to what? Stop. There should be a crowd of people helping that person get their tire back. You understand that? Now, I'm not advocating that we go do things like that in our culture, you know what I'm saying? We need to be careful, okay? Because I'm not so sure everybody out there, uh, you know, has all decks, uh, or what is it? What's the saying? All cards in their deck. You guys know what I'm saying? So we have to be careful. This is not Jewish culture. I'm just making a point here. Be safe. Use wisdom, right? So you can see from this text, though, that in Jewish culture, this is the way they operated. They were their brother's keeper. Another passage, turn to uh, Exodus 23, and I'm developing as we go. We're going back, but I'm developing the Exodus chapter 23 and verse four, and it reads, and this is about the enemy 
in your culture, Jewish culture. In verse four, if you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall surely bring it back to him again. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying under its burden and you would refrain from helping it, you shall surely help him with it. That was a part of Jewish culture. That is the law. That's God's standard. Not brother so-and-so, not the community, uh, 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 civic community's judgment. That's God's standard for the nation of Israel. Even if he's your enemy, you're to do what? You're still your brother's what? Keeper. Understand? See the culture and how different it is from our culture? Another verse. Because someone might say, well, yeah, but that's when it comes to material things and, you know, I'll go help somebody change a tire and even if it's an enemy, I might do it because, you know, whatever. Listen to this one. Turn to Leviticus chapter 19. And this should settle the matter in terms of God's heart concerning society and how he expects to govern a nation or people. And I want you guys to pay attention to the heart of your God because the Lord says about himself, I'm the Lord, I do not change. I am the same, what is it? Yesterday, today, and forevermore. So when you're reading the Bible, guys, don't, don't just shut down and stop looking at the character of God here. This is God's heart towards people, all right? He says this in verse 17. You shall not hate your brother in your heart. You shall surely rebuke your neighbor and not bear sin because of him. Wow, that's personal. You know what that means, brothers and sisters? That means if I see, or if you, let's put it this way. If you guys see me living in some type of sin or something or doing something sinful, I'm, just maybe I'm dropping F-bombs in my home, we'll say. You say, man, Pastor King, man, he... He just cursed. Ah, but he's the pastor. <laughs> right response? Oh, wrong response. Okay, let's try this again. So we'll just ignore it. You know, we'll act like it didn't happen. Right response? Wrong response. Okay? You guys, if you're living in Jewish society, you're commanded to do what? Correct me. Come to me. Now, in love. Okay, we're going to talk about that. In love, but you are commanded. You don't have a choice. It's not an option to come to me and correct me. Do you understand that? That's the tone, that's the flavor, that's the culture in Jewish society, and that should be the culture in God's house. You guys, you guys tracking with me? Okay, so I'm laying a foundation from the Old Testament, and now we're going to move to the New Testament in the context and why Jesus is doing what he's doing in Matthew chapter 7. All right? The Pharisees were notorious for this judgmental, critical spirit imposing laws upon people that weren't rooted in God's criteria, but they're what? And in that sense, they were judging, okay? Setting themselves up to be God in people's lives. You and I don't do that here in the house of God with one another. You guys understand? Okay, so that's the wrong way to judge. Now, the right way to judge. <clears throat> so looking at these passages, righteous judging defined by God's word is the Christian's responsibility to hold his fellow Christians accountable to the absolute standard of God's law in love. Emphasis on the in love but I'm just giving you guys a definition right now based upon what I just showed you from the text. Is that fair? Make sense? Okay, so let me repeat it. So righteous judging defined by God's word is the Christian's responsibility to hold his fellow Christian accountable to the absolute standard authority or criteria, call it what you want, of God's law in love. I have no right to impose my opinions on you as your pastor. But if I come with the word of God, right? Then I have authority from who? And you guys respect it because the authority's from who? God. And that's how we parent, right? That's how husbands, we lead our homes, right? Okay, so, and then it creates a society that is good and right. Now, just one caveat before we move on. Christians are not to be judging those 
were not a part of our community. Meaning who? Unbelievers. Okay, now let me show you this. Turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and I do want you to turn to this passage. And now this, you, you remember those children pop-up books where you turn the page and, poof, and then a city pops up and you're like, ooh, I, I used to love those books. Meaning I didn't like to read much, but anyway. So what 1 Corinthians 5 is all about, brothers and sisters, is the biblical doctrine, and someday we're gonna teach this here, we're gonna have a whole series on it, we're gonna have a whole class, it'll probably be in an evening gathering. Pastor Carson's probably gonna touch upon it uh, this afternoon and connect it with church membership. But the, the, the pop-up here is church discipline and why we do it, why it has to happen, what are we doing by it, right? So we don't have to fear it and we can see it coming from God and the way he's intended his church to um, conduct itself. But in 1 Corinthians 5, I just want to read verses 11 through 12. It reads this, but now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. Well, why? Why, Paul? Why are you being judgmental, harsh, cruel, mean, or whatever? For what have I to do with judging those who are outside? Do not you do you not judge those who are inside? But those who are outside, God what? Okay. So you can see Paul acknowledges what I what I'm talking about in my preaching. There's a right way to judge. That means we need to be judging, but there's a wrong way to judge. And he's applying it to the fact that we should not be judging who? Unbelievers, okay? We should be judging believers, meaning holding one another accountable in love, meaning not allowing sin to grow outgrow or to grow in our community and spread to where we look just like who? See why you need to be judging? See how God has ordained discipline and all that to work in his community, right? See, if you guys don't come to me, when I'm dropping the F-bombs in my home, I'm not encouraging dropping F-bombs in the home. I'm just making a point here. Okay, that might turn into something else. That means my kids will start what? And then others around my kids will start what? Wow, that acts just like cancer, right? And if you don't catch it, it's gonna destroy your community. That's the point, you understand? And that was the point under the old covenant and why God told the nation of Israel, you shall do this and you shall not do this, right? And God practiced excommunication under the old covenant because he did not want to see sin and immoral deviant behavior winning the day in his community. It's already doing it out there in the church or the world, right? That's why they come here. They're sick of that for those whom God is drawing. We lift up Jesus and they're like, what's that light? While they're in their dark, immoral stuff and they keep seeing these lights, maybe they come to work or maybe it's in a home gathering and, and there's this light as we lift up Jesus and we keep proclaiming Jesus and living Jesus and that gives them hope because they know, you know what? I think I'm gonna go check them out because I don't think they're judging me. I think there's hope there. They don't talk that way, but they'll feel that way. Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men to me. Keep lifting up Jesus, brothers and sisters, right? Keep being salt and light, okay? Don't let the world intimidate you. They know deep down inside they're wrong. They're playing a game right now and God's gonna expose it on judgment day and hopefully expose it in their heart before then, all right? So, Paul's saying here, we have no business judging those out there. Our business is judging those who claim to be Christian, who joined the church, and that's why church membership is so important, okay? That's why you need to have that defined. Question is, how do we do that? How do we hold each other accountable? Now, let me say, I'll be the first one to say, brothers and sisters, we are terrible at this, aren't we? Okay, and we're terrible for many reasons. One, it could be our personality, right? You got those in the church who, in their personality type, they just don't like confrontation, right? And that's okay, that's just who they are. 
But when it comes to carrying this out, they're just like, ah, that's not for me. They start making excuses, right? And then you got the other personality type that's all in your face and ready, you know, you, you know what I'm talking about? Ready to win an argument and, and, and wants to dispute all the time. And, and you're like, whoa, <laughs> chill out. You guys know what I'm talking about. And so what happens to us is the one who uh, uh, is more tempered in a way to where they don't like confrontation, they won't do it because of that until a preacher starts impressing them with the word of God, okay? And then the personality types, they, already, they feel wrong every time they win that argument because they know that their spirit was what? So they stop doing it. They go off on this guilt trip, right? That's me. I love a good theological debate. That's how I excuse it, right? I love a good theological debate, and I do. But oftentimes that theological debating was just me trying to win an argument. And I was successful most of the time <laughs> to my own hurt. So I thought in my own world, right? So anyway, the question is, how do we do this thing that I'm calling righteous judging here? And here's, so let's put it this way, you guys. Let's, let's move this judging, judgmental, because we've made a mess of the term judging, right? And all that. What we're really talking about here is how do we hold each other accountable in love in God's community? Is that, is that a better way to put it? Right? That's what we're really talking about. How do we do this thing called church in a way to where we're keeping ourselves from looking like those out there in the world or having them come in and just blend right in and we're just this one big, you know, no distinction mass. Okay. Well, the Bible gives plenty of information on this. First Corinthians chapter five, we'll, we'll come back to that. Is a um, classic text for that. But uh, so th the best way that I thought to handle this, because this is a huge topic in scripture, is I, I wanna give you several principles for how to practice righteous judging, okay? Instead of teach you didactically from the word of God. So. First, and, I, and I'm going to try to draw everything from the text. So turn back to Matthew chapter 7. And let's listen to Jesus' counsel, and then we'll try to apply it. Okay? He says, And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, Let me remove the speck from your own eye? And look, a plank is in your own eye. Hypocrite, first remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. So Jesus' counsel begins with this, deal with your own weeds first. Okay? That's where his counsel begins. You got weeds in your own backyard, right? Or backyard. And we need to be dealing with them first, or those first. Now what that looks like is this. And what Jesus is saying here is when you learn that you are a sinner saved by God's grace, all right, you actually learn that, you actually understand that, that in and of itself changes you. Follow me? Meaning when God has truly forgiven you of something, right, that hurts somebody else or that you feel, you just feel like you don't want to even live anymore after you've done it and you know that God has forgiven you for it, you know what that does to a soul? You guys know what I'm talking about? It's what I was trying to convey several sermons back when I said, if my wife committed adultery on me, the first thing where I'd go is it would crush me. Not, how could she do that to me? It would crush me because I love that woman. Do you understand? See the difference in the flavor and the attitude? And the reason why it would crush me is because of what God has done for me. You understand that? You guys get it? See, that's the foundation for judge not, lest you be judged. You understand? See, when you recognize that, man, I have truly been forgiven of, all, not just that one that I thought was, you know, I couldn't live with myself, but all my sins, past, present, and future, I've been forgiven. Then who are we? You fill in the blank. So, being forgiven kind of sets the tone for how we are to, or the attitude we should have in helping one another around here in the community of God's people. You guys with me? 
okay? And if you don't have that, you're not qualified to go deal with others. Make sense? You will automatically, you could be well-intended, just like these people are, but you'll be like a bull in the china shop. You'll be trying to get something out of somebody's eye and you'll be poking them like, stop. Would you, would you please stop? And even though they're well-intended, they just don't have it. And you can tell, right? So when people come along and try to help you and you're like, yeah, I don't think they know what they're doing. And it's not that they don't love you. It's not that they're not well-intended and well-meaning. They just don't know what they're doing. I've been there. And we're, we got to work that out together, brothers and sisters, right? In the community of God's people. We, we got to give ourselves room to grow with this. Okay? So, be careful. Um, don't be that bull in the china shop. I want, you, I want to turn to, let me just read it. Titus chapter three. This is one of my favorite verses that highlight this, that helps me not only to feel this way about my brothers and sisters in the house of God here, but also for those uh, unconverted fellow humans out there whom we all should love and our hearts should break for and we should be crushed for and over when we see them doing what comes natural to them. Why do we get so angry? They're just doing what sinners do. And we got to remind ourselves of that. Lord, there I go, but by your grace. That means... If it wasn't for your grace, I would be doing that to some, some degree, some way, shape, or form, my sin would take me to the uttermost somewhere, but by your grace. So why are we sitting as there? Get it? So your attitude should be different, right? Titus 3 One, remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work. This is Paul telling Titus, you need to be reminding this church to do these things, to speak evil of no one. And in other words, don't be judging people. To be peaceable, gentle, showing all humility to all men. And here's the reason why. For we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy and hateful and hating one another. But when the kindness and the love of God, our Savior toward man appeared, not by your works of righteousness, which you have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, that having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. That's another way of saying, because God has done this for you, you should be this way in your society. Listen, verse eight. This is a faithful saying, and these things I want you to affirm constantly, that those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable to men. And what he's saying there, as a result of what God's done for you, this is the way you should be living in your society with unbelievers, knowing that you were once hateful, right? And serving various lusts and so on and so forth. So that's the attitude that we need to have if we're going to learn how to exercise accountability here in the house of God. Okay, make sense? Okay, number two, make sure you know what's important to God. And we've already highlighted this about the Pharisees. The Pharisees were subtly doing what? Taking their traditions and replacing what? God's law. And then they were making mountains out of molehills in people's lives. I.e., why aren't your disciples washing their hands? And by the way, the ones that were washing their hands felt like they fit right into the what? culture, the pharisaical culture, the pharisaical criteria, or the pharisaical standard. And thus, they avoid feeling like they're being what? See why we do it? We just like to fit in, because nobody likes the feeling of so-called being what? Judged, right? Get it? But we, brothers and sisters, we need to make sure we understand what's important to God. So Pharisees were straining at a gnat and swallowing a camel, Meaning they were, they were highlighting their traditions, but yet they were downplaying what? The law of God. So if you keep reading in Mark chapter seven, he says, you Pharisees know that the children around here should be honoring their parents. And whosoever doesn't honor their parents under the old covenant was to be what? 
put to death your children. Now that's if they didn't repent, just like any other sin, right? You can be picking up sticks on the Sabbath day and if you didn't repent of that, you were to be stoned outside the camp. The point is the wages of sin is death. And let me just make this caveat. No one is put to death because of sin, whether it be under the old covenant or the new covenant. All people were put to death because they refused to what? Repent in light of God's mercy, kindness, grace, and compassion of their sin. So when Moses gives a law, that's a warning. You understand? God didn't have to do that. Okay? So you get excommunicated from a church when you refuse to repent. You were put to death under the old covenant when you refused to repent and receive the righteousness of God through the sacrificial system that was laid out through the shedding of blood, which represented Jesus, right? Okay, so I just wanna make that clear. But we, we, we can't be um, holding each other accountable, brothers and sisters, with what's important to us. And here's where personal preferences and opinions tend to win the day in a church, right? You know, I just don't like the music and I don't like this and that. And it's okay to leave because of those reasons. I'm not judging you for that. But what I'm saying is this, is that if, you, if you're making that an issue of God's law, see, now I have to say something as a pastor. You understand what I'm saying? And let me go a step further. It's not for me to tell you, you shouldn't be drinking alcohol. You guys get that? I have no business commanding that in anybody's life. Now, you guys might want me to do that because society's falling apart out there. You know, we might've just lost one of our teenagers in a car accident. I get that, I get it. We have good reasons to tell people why they shouldn't be doing it, but that's what it is. It's your reason, it's your opinion. There's plenty of people out there that know how to use their alcohol. They do. Jesus made alcohol at a wedding or wine at a wedding. Do you understand that? So I can't go beyond the scriptures even though I have good solid reasons and wisdom, call it what you will, but we have to make a distinction between that and thus saith the Lord. You guys know what I'm talking about. That's huge. That's huge for counseling. That's counseling 101. If you don't know this as a counselor, you shouldn't be counseling. I have to make, sometimes people want me to change people or fix people based upon good solid wisdom, but I ain't their God. I can't be telling them to do something that they might have to grow through for the next five years. You understand? God is sovereign in that, not Ernie King. You guys, you guys get that? All right? Uh, there was a time where I wanted my children here, and they were here. And it was just a maturing thing. And if I let all my personal preferences and, and I start manipulating God's word to get what I want in their life, I'm playing God. I'm judging them is what I'm really doing. I'm gonna pay a heavy price for them because I'm gonna provoke them to anger. And they ain't gonna want anything to do with Christianity. You know why? Because I have a wrong criteria. I have a judging them all these years. See how it works? And you can destroy a community and a people. See God's heart? He cares for people. He cares for communities. He cares for society. And we need to model that when we start speaking out against sin. All right? God loves his creatures. He's not willing that any should perish, but that you sinners should come to repentance. And if you feel judged by that, I, you know, that's God's heart and mind to you and law. That's not Ernie King. I'm just an ambassador representing him. Does that make sense? Number four, um, Make sure you root your attempts to help someone in the scriptures rather than your own opinion. That was number three. I just got it down twice, so let's move on to number five. Make sure the flavor of your help is redemptive and not condemning. You guys know what I mean by that? We have no right to tell somebody, you know what, I think you're unsaved. Who are you? Right? Who are you? We have to keep asking ourselves these questions when we start pontificating or when we start imposing ourselves in people's lives, right? Now, because somebody doesn't fit my theological paradigm, sometimes I feel like I have a right to say they're what? Unsaved. Now, let me ask you a question. Do you? Do you have that right? Okay? 
do I have the right, maybe as a Calvinist, to say to an Arminian, you know what, I don't think you're saved because you don't fit my theological what? Box. Get it? Who gives you that right? Who gives me that right? You're not gonna find that in here. God lays down the law for what is damnable heresies or heretical to the point to where you have to discipline. And if they don't repent of that heretical thinking, then we what? Exclude them. And even that exclusion, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 5, is so that they can be turned over to the devil, right? And the devil can go, rah, and then they go, ah, and come running back to where? Because they don't feel comfortable out there. And then we know, Lord, he's one of yours. I see it. He's coming back. Get it? They feel like a fish out of water out there. You you guys understand that? And so that should be the flavor in the house of God. That's how we hold one another accountable. That's how we keep our society pure, if you mean not perfect, but pure, right? Upholding God's law and standards in here and not compromising that, you know, all in the name of love, right? Um, know when to back off and turn things over to a higher authority. And that's what Jesus means in verse six. I'm, I'm, I'm not gonna exegete this, but I'm just gonna give you my interpretation of verse six when he says, do not give what is holy to the dogs, nor cast your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under the feet and turn and tear you in pieces. Jesus is not talking about the Gentiles there. Okay, I know that in Jewish culture, um, they tended to view the undefiled and those who are enemies of Israel's as dogs and pigs. Jesus is actually talking about dogs and pigs here. Meaning this, if you put a nice, that's a lovely necklace this, this woman has on here. If you put that on a pig, do you think the pig is gonna walk around, you know, that pig can probably eat it. You can just trample it and you know, just you know, and just start eating it, right? The pig does not value something that we do. You understand that? Nor does a dog, okay? And Jesus is saying, don't put your precious thing. That means when you're helping someone and you see they don't, they don't get it, you gotta back off. You understand? You don't put precious things before people who don't get it. You understand? And I, regardless of who you're working with, you gotta discern that. You gotta judge that. Because sometimes I think we go too far and we could either beat a dead horse, right? And turn somebody off. Or we start playing who in their lives? God, right? So we have to be those who know how to back off when things, um, or, or, and turn things over to a higher authority. In other words, we're not to cast our pearls before swine. Another example of this is Matthew 18, where Jesus says, if he will not hear you, then what are you supposed to do? Take it to another court or higher court, right? And that would be one application in the, in the realms of church discipline in Matthew ch- chapter 18, okay? But there's other applications in our lives to where when we're working with people, okay, and they're not getting it, and we insist, and then as a result of our insistence, okay, we, we destroy relationship oftentimes, right? So let me give you an example. You guys probably, well, maybe some of you, how many of you know about Samson in the Bible? I'm not talking about Hollywood Samson. I'm talking about the real Samson. Now he was big, bad, buffed and strong and all that kind of stuff. That's, that's not Hollywood, that, that's the real deal. But the point is, Samson's, Samson was a Nazarite. And that is his parents vowed him to God based upon an angel coming to them and saying, hey, look, your son's gonna be special. He's gonna be a judge in Israel and I want him to take a Nazarite vow. And what that meant is Samson wasn't supposed to cut his hair and he wasn't supposed to drink any strong drink or wine, right? And some other things, okay? But here's the point. Samson was also to keep himself pure in terms of his theology, practical theology. He was not to be going to marry pagan women, right? And so his parents come to him and say, Samson, Samson, why are you taking this woman of the Philistines? And Samson insisted, right? Parenting issue. And Manoah, that's his father, and his wife continued to resist, 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 and then they prayed, right? 
And God revealed to them that it was from the Lord because God was gonna you know, take care of the Philistines through him. But that was sin in Samson's, Samson's life. And the parents were like, what is going on here? What? This kid don't get it. And Manoah wasn't gonna do anything to him, right? Him being Samson. You guys know what I'm talking about? My point is this, Manoah knew when to back off when he got the picture of what was going on. And so do we, brothers and sisters, because we are not God. That's the whole point. See how it keeps coming back to that? These wrong criteria, lifting yourself up as God, that's wrong judging. You understand? But Manoah's parents did confront him. Get it? They, they didn't let him, they didn't let Samson, who do you think you are judging me? They didn't back off because of that. No, you know in your conscience what's right and wrong in terms of the law of God. This is not us, son. You know that. We're not trying to have our way with you. We're not trying to just get you to marry uh, Mrs. So-and-so's daughter down the street or Mr., you know, the, the, the nice family that we want for you. We're not trying to manipulate you and have our way with you as parents. You guys understand? That would be the other extreme. Manoah and his wife were simply coming to Samson with the law of God and they confronted him because they were trying to hold him accountable to what he already knew to be the case as a child in Israel living before God. That's righteous judging. You guys get it? But Samson didn't listen and Samson paid a heavy price for not listening. All right? By God's decree. Um, number seven, we have no business expecting non-Christians to change apart from God's grace. We got to maintain that in our community, you guys. And I'm not talking about behavior modification. I'm not talking about that. I know you can stop smoking cigarettes and go take up, you know, biking because you, you, your cigarettes are killing you. Or you, your wife says, if you don't stop, Drinking this moment, I'm going to divorce you. And so you modify your behavior, right? I ain't, I'm not talking about that. That's change. I'll give you that. But that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about sinners changing from the inside to the outside. That can only be done by the grace of God. Follow me? So we don't start with the unconverted by trying to change them. That's not our message. The message we start with the unconverted is what? It's called the gospel. Thank you, Pastor Phil. It's called the gospel. You have to start there. Jesus is not the big psychologist in the sky. Jesus is not saying, you know, um, I, you, you know, I know you're struggling with this and we'll just fix, you know, we'll, we'll fix you. We'll clean you. No, you have to be born again. You understand? You have to change. And so in order for you to realize that if you're a sinner today, we have to tell you, look, your sin is your identity. That is who you are. And we know it's offensive. But that's why you need Jesus. Do you understand that? You guys with me? So I don't, I don't tell the person who maybe is raping people in the community, oh, you're not a rapist. You just struggle with some, you know, some tendencies or whatever. No, you're a rapist. That's, that's exactly who you are. And the only one that can save you from that or the only one is the savior of sinners. You don't need a psychologist. You don't need a psychiatrist. You need Jesus. Because that thing in you goes deep. It's not just behavior. You guys understand? Okay? And we don't want to um, convolute that. Because people start looking at Jesus differently if you do. And they don't see themselves for who they really are. And we've lost sight of the law of God at that point and where it's really to hit by the law is the knowledge that you and I are sinners. And that's supposed to humble us to the dust to where we say, Lord, be merciful to me. <laughs> I don't need that psychologist. I need you to be merciful to me, the sinner. I liked it. I did it. I wanted to do it. And I did that for so long that I couldn't stand it anymore because it was ruining me. That's how sin works tastes scrumptious going down at first, you know, the first 10 years of your life or whatever, you know, you're doing it. And then all of a sudden it creates all these what? Problems that you can't stand anymore. Your children don't want to be around you anymore. Your health is tearing you up. And you're just like, whoa, it goes down bitter as wormwood, says the scriptures, right? You guys know what I'm talking about? We got to let that run its course in the unbelievers' lives. 
And then we come with God's law and say, that's what we've been trying to tell you. You don't need to be fixed. You need to be born again, saved, redeemed. And that's why God sent his son into the world. And I don't feel like we're judging people at that point, brothers and sisters, regardless of whether they feel like they're being judged. You got to hold ground. You guys know what I'm, you guys with me? Okay. Just want to make sure that's clear. Okay, number eight, and we'll be done here. Um, Be careful not to write fellow believers off, fellow believers off because they don't fit your Christian paradigm. And I kind of already talked about that, so I won't go over that again. So these are just some principles for judging righteously. Does that make sense so far? So ultimately though, what we're trying to do is we're trying to preserve righteousness in our community, not self-righteousness. You know, arrogant, stuck up, critical, judgmental people. If that's the flavor of who we are, you guys, shame on us. You understand that? That's not, the, that's not a Christian society, okay? And you better check yourself. That's what Jesus says. If the light that is in you be darkness, you better, it runs deep. Now you can see what the Pharisees were creating in Israel historically. See all this stuff? See why Jesus is going after the Pharisees? They're the juggernauts. They're the, they're the, they're the nucleus that was causing all this stuff. They were teaching it, Right? Remember the commandment where he says, you have heard that it has been said of them of old, you shall uh, love your neighbor, but hate your enemy. That wasn't even taught in the old covenant. The Pharisees changed that. I just showed you in Leviticus where God says, you shall not hate your enemy in your heart or your neighbor. You, you should be taking his ox out of the ditch and giving it back to him, your enemy. So where's the Pharisees getting this? Their tradition. You guys see how it works? And then because it has something in us, right? I'm telling you right now, I wouldn't want to go take my enemy's ox and give it back to him, right? Now you can see where we're just like who? The Pharisees. There we go, but by your grace, Lord. Thank you for your law. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your grace because that's my plea. That's my confidence. That's my hope. It's not within myself. I'm a sinner and I'm just like them, but by your grace, amen? All right, let's pray. God, thank you for your law, Lord, and thank you that it is the only absolute we can trust. And we pray that as we learn it, that you would keep us from being judgmental and critical in the lives of each other, but help us to be loving and gracious and help us to be those who can preserve your glory and your fame and your name at EGBC. And we ask it all in Jesus' name, amen.